Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. How marvelous is your mercy. We approach you with deepest reverence. Not, not with flippidness, not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. Please meet us in your word. May this text help us to want you more. May this text help us to sin less. We want to have a greater understanding of your sovereignty after walking through this passage. We want to have a greater strength to, to persevere after working through this passage. You did not give us this text simply to thrill us or merely inform us of the past, but to reveal something about your character that our souls desperately need to feast on. Would you spread a table in the wilderness? Give us scriptural water for our parched spirits. Give us biblical meat for our hungry souls. Take this exposition like bread and fish in your hands. Break it. Multiply it. Meet the needs. Put your power on display. May we leave saying we have feasted. We are full. We have eaten from the hand of the Lord. We really need you to yank us out of our delusions of self-sufficiency. Remind us today how deeply needy we are. Father, this is our problem. We quit seeing ourselves as needy. All of us in this room would like to think we are fundamentally good people whose biggest struggles in life exist outside, not inside of us. We need correction. We need to see the problem. We need to see our sin. We are prone to sin. Grant that we may experience thy restraining grace. That at the sound of your voice we flee temptation. That in the moment of decision we see you as more beautiful. That at our weakest point you infuse us with strength to resist. We are prone to sin. And we are also prone to doubt after we sin. So grant that we may hear thy assuring voice. Assuring us that by your stripes we are healed. That you were bruised for our iniquities. That you were made sin for us. That all our sins are buried in the sea of your cleansing blood. We are guilty but pardoned. Wandering but found. Sinning but cleansed. That would be sufficient, Lord. Grant thy restraining grace and thy assuring voice. We are no longer our own. We are yours. Place us where you will. Place us with whom you will. Put our bodies to serving. Put our bodies to suffering. Let us be put to work for you. Or set aside for you. Praised for you. Or criticized for you. We live and exist for you. May we face all that comes to us in these days for the praise of your glory. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We have experienced this day at least one time where we pack up our things and move them from one house to another. How many of you have moved more than four times in your life? You've had moving day four or more times. Would you raise your hand? That is, that is not surprising to me. For half of you in the military, you get to do moving day every three years. It's fun to be you. Uh, how many of you enjoy moving day? <laughs> how many of you dislike moving day? Some of you have moved clear across the United States. Some of you have moved countries. How many of you have moved this year? You've moved this, look around. You've moved this year. Uh, we did too. Uh, a couple of you came to help us on our recent moving day. I want my next moving day to be to heaven. <laughs> I'm not packing anything. I'm just leaving it all behind. In our text, moving day. There are four movements in our passage. 
I'll give them to you now, but we will walk through them one at a time. So do not fret, beloved, if you can't get it all down before we move to the next slide. Four movements. Solomon building a mini subdivision, verses 1 through 12. Hiram doing high-end carpentry work, verses 13 through 51. Israel moving the ark into the temple, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. God moving his presence into the temple, chapter 8, verse 10 through 21. Solomon building a mini subdivision. Hiram doing high-end carpentry work. Israel moving the ark into the temple. God moving his presence into the temple. Let's begin with Solomon building a mini subdivision. He will build five main buildings. All are a part of the royal complex. It's a staggering prospect, but he completes it. Verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. It took Solomon seven years to build God's house and 13 years to build his own house. Maybe I shouldn't call Solomon's house a house. It was more like a palace. The narrator is seeking to draw your attention to the difference in construction time. The last verse of chapter 6 says it took Solomon seven years to build the temple. The first verse of chapter 7 says it took him 13 years to build his own palace. Those verses are meant to be read together. Chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. In the Hebrew, chapter 7 begins with, but now, indicating a contrast between the length of times. Solomon's house is much bigger than the temple. That's another red flag. It seems Solomon's energies were diverted from temple building. Another indication of his divided heart. You can put your kingdom over God's kingdom. You can put your kingdom over God's kingdom. Your house over his house. From the jump, I want to give you this warning. Nice subdivisions and remodeled houses will not give you lasting satisfaction. Nice subdivisions and remodeled houses will not give you lasting satisfaction. The right house is not going to bring you the great life. The place where you live is less important than many things. Philip Ryken points out that not a lot of time is spent on describing Solomon's house in the text. More time is spent on God's house. You have one verse for Solomon's house, 117 verses for God's house. Solomon spent more time on his house, but it seemed to be time not invested in eternity. God valued the lesser project. The narrator does not tell us how we are to interpret all these buildings and the subdivision. But he seems to tell us how to interpret this one negatively. Solomon's extravagance in the temple was called for. His extravagance in his home was not. Solomon was tempted with extravagance. He possessed self-aggrandizing tendencies. In a culture that idolizes houses, you must take note of this. The right house is not going to bring you the great life. You are surrounded by home makeover shows, renovation shows, interior decor, Instagram pages. We are bombarded with fixer-uppers, house hunters, and shiplap. How can we ever be complete without shiplap? With rising expectations and creeping indulgence, we expect a better house than the one we have now. We don't need to keep up with Chip and Joanna Gaines. We don't need to keep up with our friends on social media. Home renovation shows can be dangerous because we are not to covet our neighbor's house. One man said, even Solomon would envy our granite countertops, brush brushed nickel finishes, and South American hardwoods. Nice, nice subdivisions and remodeled houses will not bring you lasting satisfaction. 
Do not look for in your house what can only be found in God's house. Solomon's building a mini subdivision. The first build, Solomon's palace. The second build, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Let's look at verse 2. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars and it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 on, in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. This building was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It was an imposing structure lined with 45 cedar pillars. It made it appear, it appear like a, a forest. Windows arranged symmetrically opposite each other so it would be well lit during the daytime. The building seemed to be an armory for defense, weapons stored in it. This may have been a repository of the national treasury as well. We have here a weapons center and a bank vault. First build, Solomon's palace. Second build, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Third build, the hall of pillars, verse 6. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. This is a colonnade, a, a large hall with rows of stately pillars. You might think of a, a grand hallway that connects two buildings. The hallway is so large, it is a building in itself. We are not sure how these five buildings were exactly laid out, but they were all in the same general area. First build, Solomon's palace. Second, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Third, the hall of pillars. Fourth build, the hall of judgment. Verse 7. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment. Even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. The hall of the throne or the hall of judgment was a courtroom. Remember that famous judicial case a couple of chapters ago with the kidnapped infant? Solomon built a courtroom where he heard legal disputes and judged between competing parties. It was close to his house. He could simply walk to it. This is where the king governed. Notice the fifth build. The she-shed, a house for his Egyptian wife. Verse 8. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. After a note jumping back up and saying Solomon's palace was of like workmanship, cedar from floor to rafters, the narrator reveals the final house built in this mini subdivision. A she shed. A house for Solomon's Egyptian wife, her personal residence. She did not live in the palace with him. He seems to have favored this wife above the others. Or maybe she just had a father whom he didn't want to disappoint. Either way, this house is sin. It was Peter who told us, live with your wives in an understanding way. The key word there is live with them. In the same house. Solomon said, no thanks, I'll build you a little she shed in the back. In verses 9 through 12, we just have some general overarching construction notes concerning all of the builds. Verse 9. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. All these builds aesthetically blended with each other. There was uniformity. You could tell it was the same builder. 
unique characteristics that flow throughout the mini subdivision. All buildings were built with the same great costly stones. There is also, also we find out here, a huge courtyard. Lots of green space. This is a desired subdivision. The nicest of its day. Solomon building a mini subdivision, now Hiram doing high-end carpentry work. This section is full of interior decorating, full of fixtures. Interior designers would really like this chapter. Hiram crafts the finishes for the temple. The temple is the sixth build in the building complex. It's the only one with divine blueprints. Verse 13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. Introducing Hiram. This is not... Hiram, king of Tyre, but Hiram, king of carpentry. He rules woods and stains and details. Not Hiram the king, another man by the same name. Both are from Tyre, both contributed to the building project. One Hiram supplied the wood, the other Hiram made the wood wow you. This Hiram developed the skill in the backwoods of a little workshop. Many years of crafting and perfecting led him to get this job. We find a little note concerning his family tree. He's part Israelite, a mix between Israelite and Turian descent. He has unique skills fitted for decorating God's house. We don't know if he was a believer, but he was tasked with this great privilege. This guy is famous for woodworking. Or maybe to be more specific, famous for metalworking, brassworking, metallurgy. He's the Leonardo da Vinci of high-end finishes, a renowned craftsman. Verse 15. He cast two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. Hiram's first masterpiece was two pillars. Each pillar was 27 feet tall and 18 feet around. Picture two brass pillars extending to the height of a giraffe, then double it. Stack two giraffes on top of each other, and that's how tall these pillars were. They were round, but you could not wrap your arms around them. I don't care how slinky you are. If you take three full garage doors, wrap them in a circle, that's how wide these pillars were. They are hollow, meaning they are for ornamentation only. They only add to the beauty of the structure, not the stability of the structure. They are freestanding, not load-bearing, not supporting the roof. Uh, look at their tops. L look at the hats on these giraffes, verse 16. He also made two capitals to cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattice, lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on tops of the pillars. A lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. He did the same with the other capital. Now, the capitals that were on tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the lattice work. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. This architectural feature adds some seven to eight feet to the original structure. 
Each capping is stylized. Amazing detail we are privy to. Each hat decorated with rows of fruit and chains of flowers. Over three stories tall now. Solomon named each pillar. The name likely inscribed on the pillar. So when you walk up to the structure, you see three-story tall pillars and read the words inscribed on them. Verse 21. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Yaquin. He set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. These two pillars tell us everything. They are symbolic, not functional. They relay a message to you. Yaquin means Yahweh will establish. On the other side, Boaz means Yahweh is strength. Together they say, Yahweh will establish in his strength. Yahweh will establish in his strength. God wanted everyone who saw the pillars to be gripped by this truth. There were a lot of times the promises of God looked like they fell on the dirt and died. But he never lets his covenant die. Establish is a key word in the covenant to David. God brought this to pass by his strength. He established a covenant with his people and will keep it by his strength. This temple towers in the Middle East because God established it. These people possess covenant Because God's strength keeps the covenant. Church, I gave you a warning. Now let me give you a blessing. God is the one who establishes a relationship with his children. And it is kept by his strength. God is the one who establishes a relationship with his children. And it is kept by his strength. We need the proclamation of the pillars just like they did. They went to worship and were reminded of this message. And when we go to worship, we need to be reminded of this message. We forget that God is the one who establishes this relationship. We didn't establish it. We didn't pick the day of salvation. We are only able to come into his presence by what he locked into place. In your time of weakness and sickness, you need these two pillars to sustain you. In your time of doubts and bouts, you have these pillars to sustain you. He called you. You didn't call him. Hiram doing high-end carpentry work. We see the two pillars, now the sea. Verse 23. Then he made the sea. Wait a minute, I thought God did that in Genesis. Let's keep reading. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, and 5 cubits high. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. This enormous basin was 15 feet across from brim to brim. It was designed to hold as much as 10,000 to 12,000 gallons of water. No wonder people called it the sea. Larger than many swimming pools. It carries the same amount of water that the average above ground swimming pool would carry. Priests would ceremonially wash in this sea. Cleansing their hands and their feet. This was ritual cleansing, not daily bath cleansing. Verse 25. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and their rear parts were inward. In other words, it stood on the backs of bulls, rested on the backs of oxen, not live bulls, but faux bulls cast out of bronze. Verse 26, its thickness was a handbreadth. And its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths. (laughs) Beveled wreath work, lily work, floral imagery, highly decorative. Hiram carved 
cherubim, lions, and palm trees with wreaths all around. You see on this picture, this architectural reenactment, the sea on the backs of bulls. The two pillars, the sea, now the ten stands and basins. Verse 27. He also made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. Six square feet. Six square feet stands. Each stand had floral patterns, carefully carved details. We are left to wonder, what do these stands hold? Verse 37. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. And he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held, here we go, 40 baths. Each basin measured four cubits, and there was a basin for each of the ten stands. Each stand held basins for water. Each identical basin held anywhere from 220 gallons to 240 gallons. Basins and their pedestals. Each pedestal was a cart or trolley that could move the basin. They could be wheeled around the outer court for various washings. Basins were used to rinse the meat for sacrifice. The big sea was used for ceremonial cleansing. Basins washed meat. The big sea washed priests. The basins looked like this. Ten ornate movable trolleys. Lots of animal parts being washed in these before sacrificing. What does this tell us? God has a concern for cleanliness. God didn't put pools and bowls out so that the birds could bathe. This sea was constructed for the priest. After sacrificing the animal, they would have to wash their bloody hands and their bloody feet. The priest would wash multiple times a day. This is picturing cleansing. Priests were butchers. They lived in blood baths. This is a sea of blood. The little basins were bowls of blood. It required constant water changes. Two, the two pillars, the sea, the ten stands and the basins, now the smaller bronze pieces, verse 40. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. This is interesting. His craftsmanship in large objects first, now his craftsmanship in smaller objects. Pans for hot coals, tongs, incense dishes. Verses 41 through 44 are a summary of all the things Hiram made. A summary of all the bronze work. An inventory of the items he creatively crafted. And then we arrive at verse 45. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay between Succoth and Zarephath. These pots mentioned are large cauldrons used for cooking the offering meat. It's revealed where and how these items were made. Hiram cast them at one location and brought them to this location. He cast them in the mud along the Jordan River. Verse 47 tells us no one has any idea how much bronze was used in the interior of the temple. But it was a lot. Master metallurgy put on display. But why all this information? Who cares about pomegranates and basins and fire pans and pillars? The narrator loves describing the liturgical elements. See the painstaking detail? That the details of the temple are part of God's revelation to you about himself. The building is designed to impress. The purpose is to express the incomparability of Israel's God. 
Everything was made with care for the worship of God. Did you notice that each part of the temple had a counterpart in the tabernacle? Virtually identical furniture. The, the sea stood in the temple's courtyard, replacing the tabernacle's brazen laver as the place for the, the priests to cleanse themselves. The temple is almost like a replica of the tabernacle. The tab was the prototype. Solomon's temple was on the scale of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was one-third as high, half as wide, half as long. One was the first printing, the other was the final printing. There is even a counterpart for Hiram. Hiram is described as a man full of wisdom, understanding, and skill in making work in bronze. This parallels the description of Bezalel, a man whom God gave skill, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship to construct the tabernacle's furnishings. Same exact language used in Exodus 35. This chapter ends by notating that Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated. The silver, the gold, and the vessels. And he stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Solomon building a mini subdivision. Hiram doing high-end carpentry. Israel moving the ark into the temple. Israel moving the ark into the temple. It's moving day, friends. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes. The leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And this is quite a moving crew. The, the purpose was not to assemble all these people to tour the many subdivisions or to express their support for the king. They intended to carry the ark to the temple, to bring the furniture of God into his house. This is the most important furniture piece in the temple. This carrying of the ark was a bit like a parade. It started with the leaders of Israel. The Second Chronicles 5, a parallel passage, says there were symbols, there were harps, there were 120 priests blowing their trumpets, hundreds of people singing. It was a very careful procession. They knew if they were trite with the furniture, they could die just like Uzzah in 2 Samuel. The ark was a gold-plated rectangular chest, 45 inches long and 27 inches high. It had a gold ring at every corner. Two gold-plated poles helped to move the ark without touching it. In the ark were the Ten Commandments. The mercy seat was the lid over the ark. Some have called it the atonement cover. On the lid were cherubims. These are angels that are mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. Most people picture little fat chubby creatures. These were majestic creatures. The top of the ark, the top of the ark was God's throne. The law was under his feet. Once a year, the high priest on the day of atonement would drain blood from a lamb and then apply it to the mercy seat which pictured covering the broken law with blood. The blood perfectly satisfied the demands of the law. This was not a magic box like Raiders of the Lost Ark. This was a portable symbol of God's presence, a tangible reminder, a visible earthly token that represented God's dwelling. It was Israel's holiest artifact. This chest of Acadia wood covered in gold was God's chest. But he did not reside in the ark. God didn't set up residence in the box. This was God's box, his representative symbol, but God wasn't in the box. He used the box to teach his people about his holiness and their sin. Verse 2. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, 
which is the seventh month. Let's stop here. Solomon is coordinating the dedication of the temple with the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. During the Feast of Booths, everyone stayed in tents because God stayed in a tent with them in their Exodus journeys. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of how God had faithfully been with his people through their wilderness wanderings. When they lived in tents, when God's people lived in tents, he stuck his tent right in the middle of their tents. There's rich associations with this month. Solomon must build God a permanent temple because the wanderings had long ended. They had permanent dwellings. Now God gets his permanent dwelling. This moving of the ark seems to have been 11 months after the temple was completed. They waited until this wonderful festive celebration that Israel took part in each year. This marks the end of striving for a homeland. Verse 3. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Now, the only reason to bring the tent, to bring the tabernacle, was to store it in the side rooms of the temple. Used for 400 years, the tabernacle is now obsolete. Fold it up and store it away. God will have no rival place where he is worshipped. This temple will be the national spot of worship. Notice verse 5. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from the outside. And there, they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Let's look at this picture here. You'll see right here, these are the three-story storage rooms. That's where the tabernacle would have been stored. You see right here, that's the sea. And then along here, that is the basins. And then you see one of the two pillars here. Right inside the holy place, right here, the Holy of Holies, that is where the ark is. The ark is in the Holy of Holies. It's a perfectly cubed room, 30 by 30 by 30. Solomon building a mini subdivision, Hiram doing high-end carpentry work, Israel moving the ark into the temple, now God moving his presence into the temple. The temple, though richly beautified, it's just an ornate building until God's presence moves in. God's furniture has moved in. Now Solomon will invite the Lord to move in. This is an invitation for Yahweh to take up residence in his temple. Verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This was a sure sign of divine blessing. The cloud signified Yahweh saying, I accept this house. First, the symbol of God's presence, the ark. Now the reality of God's presence, the cloud. The building was no guarantee of his presence. In grace, he came down. 
This is undoubtedly one of the most beautiful buildings in all human history. As marvelous as it was to see the glory of Solomon's architecture, it is infinitely more marvelous to meet the God whose beauty and royalty and holiness this temple proclaimed. You would hate to build the temple and there be no cloud. God descends in unapproachable glory. The cloud drove them back. They could no longer minister sacrifices. It was temporarily expulsive. Have we ever in the scripture witnessed God coming down in a cloud? Yes. This cloud is not new. It was in Exodus. He led Israel through the wilderness with a cloud. He filled the tabernacle when Moses dedicated it with a cloud. This cloud was a symbol of God's presence among his people. A visible sign, the Lord occupies the temple. This is the glory cloud. It reappears again at the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. I gave you a warning, a blessing, now a teaching. God's presence is both dangerous and approachable. He is both imminent with us and transcendent beyond us. God's presence is both dangerous and approachable. He is both imminent with us and transcendent beyond us. God's glory cloud drove people back, but it also invited them in. It's dangerous and approachable. He is imminent, meaning he is knowable, perceivable, and graspable. Just made that up, graspable. <laughs> yet, yet transcendent, meaning he is lofty, mysterious, and so far beyond us. Though we can never understand God fully, we can understand God truly. God's glory cloud presents both obscurity and clarity. Both together. He is in front of you, yet inexhaustible. The fact that God's presence drives the priest to stop working speaks of the unapproachableness of God. He's other, he's holy. Marvel at the holiness of God. Worship him in the splendor of his majesty. Yet at the same time, he's personal. In the same house, the same subdivision. He's incomprehensible, yet knowable. We minimize God when we teach the approachableness of God while neglecting the unapproachableness of God. He's not a slightly bigger and slightly smarter version of us. Notice as well, there is revelation. There is a glory cloud. There is revelation, but never exhaustive revelation. There is a certain hiddenness about God. The cloud together displays and conceals Yahweh's splendor. He's in the temple, but he's omnipresent, everywhere present. He's in the temple, yet can never be contained by the temple. The cloud reveals and conceals. How did the people respond to his revelation? So proper. Both with fear and festivity. God is both incomprehensible and knowable at the same time. We must worship in the mystery of the incomprehensibility of God and the knowability of God. This is what the glory cloud teaches us. Verse 12, Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Solomon responds in awe 
and underscores the mystery of God. Verse 13. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a lofty abode, a princely dwelling, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. Beloved, Solomon has been speaking to God, but he now turns and speaks to the people. He turned to face the congregation and blesses them. He gives them a doxology. I want to read the doxology in full because these words not only dropped from the lips of Solomon, but they dropped from the lips of God. Verse 15. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build a house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's beautiful. A theologically packed doxology. Assuring words to an often unassured people. Notice how he started verse 15. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth. <laughs> what he said with his mouth, he fulfilled with his hand. The promise maker is the promise keeper. This is the character of God in one sentence. His hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth. We need to learn to live in this faith. His faithfulness to fulfill the promises he's vowed assures us. He doesn't just say things. He does those things. He's not all talk. Solomon loosely quotes elements of the Davidic covenant. He's treasuring the promises of God. And we too are recipients of the promises of God. Solomon is aware of his own central role in redemptive history. You tasked me to build your temple. Church, I've given you a warning, a blessing, a teaching, now an unfolding. God unfolds a pressing desire expressed in different acts throughout human history. Now I realize that sentence doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. I'm going to unpack it. God unfolds a pressing desire expressed in different acts throughout human history. What is the real point of the tabernacle? Why did God put his tent in the middle of their tents? And what is the point of this temple? Why did God move into their subdivision? Both actions reveal God's desire. It's a desire that unfolds throughout different acts all throughout human history. It is the desire to dwell with his people. The creator desires to dwell with the created. God has always been moving toward us. He desires to live with us. You say, Kyle, I desire to live with him. Good, good. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's desire to dwell with us. This desire is unfolded in the Bible. The point of this temple narrative, this section consisting of chapters 5 through chapter 9, the point of the temple narrative, so, 
one of the members came up to me before the service and they're like, I don't know what you're going to do with the passage today. I don't know what you're going to do. What is the point? It is not to give us a construction manual. This information here is not meant for you to leave and go build the temple. In fact, the Bible gives great detail, but does not provide all the details needed for a complete reconstruction. These chapters are like an architectural rendering, not full blueprints. The point of the temple is to show you that God desires to live with you. Here's the kicker. Even if you could build this temple again, God would not dwell in it. You know why? Because the temple, just like the tabernacle, was meant to be folded up and put away. It was only for a certain time in history to show God's people this truth. He wants to dwell with them. God folded up the tabernacle. He folded up the temple. They were temporary ways to demonstrate this truth. The full unfolding of this truth happened at Bethlehem. Remember the announcement at his birth? Give him a name. What name? Emmanuel. God with us. This is God come to dwell with us. The person of Jesus Christ is where God has made it possible for his people to meet with him again. We are not surprised by the folding away of these Old Testament places when we behold the unfolding of the incarnation. Father, there is a moving day we long for. The day we move into the new earth. When we will experience your full presence, not shielded by a cloud. That will be an unclouded day. Help us not to look for in our moving days on the old earth what can only be found in the moving day on the new earth. On that day, when we see you unclouded, on that great moving day, we will see you shining as the sun. We shall be singing on that day. We will not move you in. You will move us in. And we will see our Father who is waiting for us. Amen.